So tonight I'd like to just share some thoughts and reflections on the the unity of uh, the wisdom of emptiness and compassion, like two sides of the same coin, you could say. You know, sometimes we can, in our practice, not only here, but all through our life, it can sometimes seem like what we're seeing or learning or hearing is more focused on the emptiness, the anatta, the wisdom side. Sometimes it can seem like it's more focused or we need to give more energy to the compassion side. And sometimes just be in the way our minds work, we can set these two things up as somehow separate from one another, some kind of dichotomy, some kind of, I don't know, some way they're in conflict or they don't go together or that as if we could separate, as if they were two separate things. So just my reflections only mind that, of course, they're not. The Tibetans have a, uh, I'm sure you're quite familiar with, a uh, wonderful way of describing the three, they call threefold aspect of the nature of mind, you could say, which is that it's naturally empty, empty of self, of any separate individual, self-existence. Second, that the nature is naturally aware, naturally awake, the simplicity that knowing is the natural function of the mind, is what we've been exploring. And the third aspect, that it is ceaselessly responsive, which would mean, I interpret that to mean that the, in, faced with any need to respond, in the world. It isn't just hanging out in the emptiness of nothing matters, but what spontaneously arises in the wisdom, the mind of wisdom, is the appropriate response. In terms of quality of mind, you could say is one of the four Brahma Viharas, faced with uh, difficulty, with suffering, it would come out with compassion, with joy, mudita, with a complex situation or something out of control, equanimity, with simple connecting with this moment, metta. For example, there's a, a saying Guy often quotes, which I just checked with him, he didn't use yet. He said I could, <laughs> since it's the end. <laughs> but, uh, a Zen master asks, say, being asked, you know, what's the result of a lifetime of practice? And the answer is an appropriate response ceaselessly responsive. So in some ways, just to talk uh, very simple ways about our practice, compassion and panya, wisdom, the, the deep insight into emptiness, just because we have to talk, we talk about them as two different understandings, but that they support and interweave with one another and each needs the other for uh, freedom for deep understanding. So in terms of compassion, it needs wisdom to be able to open, to be with the vastness of suffering, not to drown, to be able to bring in the vastness of equanimity. So this is from the Dalai Lama talking about compassion, who said, it must be derived from our insight into the emptiness of inherent self. This is where the vast meets the profound. Without the unity of compassion and emptiness, we can easily fall into despair. Because though our compassion may be strong, without this wisdom, it is likely to have a quality of hopelessness, even despair. I mean, I certainly experience that. I imagine maybe you do sometimes. How can we possibly open to all of this, or even just this knee pain, never mind all of this. And on the other side, the wisdom of emptiness, of anatta, of nothing separate inherently me or anything inherently separate or self-existing, that can verge into disconnection. It's incomplete. It can go into this kind of uh, view of nothing really matters that doesn't have the, the quality of um, 
life, of tenderness for life that compassion has. This is from Nyosho Kempo, who is the Rinpoche that Guy spoke about last night that he met in Nepal, talking about that. He says the date in talking of, he's talking about the danger of what we could call falling into emptiness. The danger is that we hear too much too soon. We think we have understood shunyata, or emptiness, and we err on the side of the absolute in a nihilistic fashion and are obscured by concepts. Nagarjuna said, it is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material concrete reality, but far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practices, through the ways of skillful means. But those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to re-emerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. Right? That's how it feels. Now, I love it that Guy talked about Nyoshal Ken last night, because you get it, he's not just some namby-pamby. He knows what he's talking about in terms of the vastness of emptiness. Get it that he's someone who's talking from experience, not from view. So just to talk a little about each, just, these are just my reflections, certainly not a comprehensive, right? This is the vastness of our whole path, in my opinion, exploring both of these and how they come together. So I thought of it as what's the, the question of the incompleteness of emptiness, the incompleteness of the wisdom of anatta? And it's something that, um, that's what I just mentioned, this sense of, and these are words that people have said to me at different times on retreat, about either ideas, the idea of anatta, which is very different from the experiential knowing of emptiness, the idea of it. But sometimes the experience, you have a, an experience of not self, and it's a little freaky sometimes. So if people say, well, you know, it's, it's fearful, it's unsettling, it's alien, it's inhuman, it's basically unattractive all same grayness, it's disconnected, nothing matters. If we say we talk about awareness doesn't care what happens, you think, well, why bother with anything? Why not just go sit in a room and do nothing if nothing matters anyway? You know, that kind of falling into emptiness, part of delusion, but there's a sense of, of, of disconnect, of a kind of... Um, just emptiness in a not good way, <laughs> not something that's really onward leading when we think about it. Because that lacks the ceaselessly responsive, connected quality. So the question about if it is true that there's no inherent self-existence in anything, that every arising is really empty, just as empty as any thought when you look at it and watch it poof away. Everything has that quality of insubstantiality. What's the point? So that's the question, the incompletion of emptiness as a totality of view. But the experience, as we begin to and continue to experience it and understand it, is really, as I hope you already know, this isn't like, I mean, the vastness of it may be way beyond where we are, but moments of experience this we all know. That time when the, just because, the sense of uh, the energy that's bound up in this obsessive, relentless self-referencing, this uh, undying relating everything back to me as the center of the universe. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's exhausting. (laughs) It takes up so much energy. You ever notice sometimes when you have some insight, not even a big one, there's often a lot of energy and enthusiasm? 
the energy that's all bound up in me, me, me gets released. But we can't think our way out of that. It's really a, a misunderstanding. And so when we think, well, how would it be? It doesn't make sense. It has to actually happen over and over and over. So without that understanding of emptiness, we can think, well, we act in a way that's for the good of beings and all. But when it's still coming from that uh, ongoing self-referencing, even with our best intentions, we can't see clearly. I heard, I think I used this, I've used this example before, but I love it. I heard on uh, the public radio a couple of years ago talking about various economic theories of which I know nothing about economics. But this one, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but the, the, the uh, so-called generalized theory, not really scientific, that this, this radio program was talking about that was sort of um, behind the way banks and things were working up until 2008, although I don't think it's changed, before everything crashed, which was called um, acting in rational self-interest. The theory being that if we each act in rational self-interest, what's good for me but rational, that will be for the good of all. So, yeah, we can laugh, but do we even know, right? So the example I gave, and this is what I love, is that apparently um, in London, they built this bridge called the Millennium Bridge when they were having this big Millennium celebration. It was a big footbridge that they built over the Thames River. Very, you know, big, fancy thing. And so when it first opened, I guess they said in this program, the first day when all these hundreds of people were walking over this new, fancy, architecturally designed bridge, there were like several hundred people on it, and it was like too many people, and the whole bridge started shaking and kind of like wavering from side to side. And so they said that that person, each, each person there saw how it was like leaning to one side. So acting in rational self-interest, each person stepped to the other side to balance it. So all 400 people stepped to the other side and it just made the whole thing even worse. Because it's my rational self-interest rather than being able to see the big picture. Even with the best intention, without wisdom, you know, our perception shaken. So, so much energy for life is released. And the ability to recognize so much more clearly is released. And that allows for clear seeing and appropriate response. And then again, the question comes up in terms of okay, so it's, there's not mean I'm not acting in rational self interest, but. This is from Padampa Sangye. Someone once asked, but once we've realized emptiness, then can it still harm us to commit negative acts? And he answered, once you realize emptiness, it would be absurd to do anything negative. When you realize emptiness, compassion arises with it simultaneously. So just think, in your own experience, just a very simple moment, which I trust in six weeks, you've had at least, and you maybe can remember, one simple moment when nothing particular was going on, but there was just that sense of real presence, you know, when the mind kind of clears, and suddenly the wanting or the aversion or the confusion that was clouding it just goes away. Someone was even mentioning today some experience, and they said, oh, that's the aversion. And then everything just cleared, just from the awareness noticing what was happening. Maybe you're just outside taking a step, or seeing a leaf, or hearing the rain. Or you've been caught up in feeling judgment of somebody, and they walk past and there's just metta, and all that falls away, and you're just there with this clarity, right? Not comparing to past or future or congratulating yourself, but just, you know, the isness of that moment. Do you have a sense of what I mean? Just very simple. In that moment, could the thought of harming someone 
even arise? In that moment, if someone... What is going on? (laughs) In that moment, if someone fell or needed help, would you even have to stop and think, what's the compassionate thing to do? You know, or what about me? Or it's the appropriate response is there, so simple. It's not a big view that we have to cultivate and adhere to and think about. It's just the natural response of the mind in that moment that's not <laughs> all bound up with a sense of self-referencing. So simple, but as we know, not so easy, not so easy. Now I messed up my order of things. Okay. So it's absurd to do anything negative. And what naturally arises, now we're switching into the way the Buddha speaks about in the suttas, that with the arising of wisdom, the link between panya, this is in the Eightfold Path, Guy mentioned and Greg mentioned, the link between panya, between wisdom, and our actions in the world is this second right intention, wise thought. And what naturally occurs with the moments of clear seeing, with the moments of this freedom, just this freedom from the contraction, from the clinging, from the self-referencing, just for a moment. What naturally occurs is that the habits of thought that lead to action, these habits naturally purify. And it's our old friends, but um, the, the habit of greed, of clinging, naturally begins to shift to renunciation and then to generosity. Renunciation not being uh, a life of hardship where you have to push away everything pleasant. Renunciation is an inner attitude. This is all on the level of intention. It's the natural releasing of the clinging. Renunciation is an experience of the joy of simplicity. It's not the get out the uh, the, what do you call it, the hair shirt and you can't eat and whatever. Renunciation is the clinging drops away. And there's just this appreciation of space and simplicity. It's a beautiful quality, which naturally then leads to generosity. Ill will, the habit of ill will, naturally transforms into the habit of metta. And that of cruelty naturally transforms to compassion. And um, ignorance changing to wisdom isn't an act of intention, but that's from the insight, from the clear seeing. So that's kind of the link that the Buddha makes here in terms of how wisdom leads to action and how the action shows up as compassion, metta, non-clinging. So another quotation I thought of just doing 10 million quotations tonight. You don't know how many I have on this, but I did base, really massive triage. Massive. <laughs> this is from um, Stephen Batchelor talking about Shanti Deva, who wrote A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which Stephen translated many years ago. And he says, when uh, Shanti Deva's closed sense of self dissolved, He did not vanish into the abyss of nothingness. It's not that, oh, I realized emptiness and poof. (laughs) But he realized that to be empty means what I was just saying, to no longer be full of oneself. And then this is Stephen saying, for Shanti Deva's insight into emptiness does not merely change the way he views the world, but it also transforms the way he feels about it. The heart is opened to the anguish of others, prompting a spontaneous longing to assuage their suffering. This is like a more emotional way of talking about the movement into compassion. And yet he can also acknowledge the irrational nature of the passion to save all beings, because as a limited human being, that's impossible. So how to hold the two? 
you know, realizing even the Buddha couldn't fix the world. He couldn't even fix all his relatives. They went to war and killed each other. I mean, you know, that isn't what we can do. And yet, that movement of feeling, being open to, letting the anguish of ourselves in the world touch us and turn it into compassion is the movement from the wisdom of emptiness. So if I was to say, in my mind, what I was talking about this, the question of how, how um, the wisdom of emptiness opens into compassion, but how does compassion need the wisdom of emptiness? And so this has been like an ongoing question in my life, these two balancing. So one way I put it is, you know, how can we continue to open over and over, because there's never a one-time anything, to open to the beauty and the suffering in this complex and beautiful world. There's so much. Just sitting here, not talking to each other in our own mind and body, there's so much beauty, there's so much confusion, there's so much suffering. How do we continue to find the courage to connect, to not turn away, to respond in the face of sometimes overwhelming amounts of information even, of suffering externally, in the face of external enmity, or to find the courage internally not to just go to the automatic habit of response of hatred or aggression or fear. That's the work in some extent that we've all been doing here together. It's amazing, ennobling work. And as you find probably at times, it needs enormous courage, doesn't it? Enormous perseverance. And not to think we're ever going to be perfect in it. But how do we find that faith, that internal wisdom? As Martin Luther King described, describing um, what the uh, practice of nonviolence is. He said, the practice of nonviolence means not only do you not um, shoot a person, you also refuse to hate a person. This is really like the depth of compassion, and that's not possible, as the Dalai Lama said, without the deep wisdom, without the deep wisdom of emptiness. Because as Stephen Batchelor talking about Shanti Davis says, you know, it changes the, wor- the way we feel about the world. Where is this quote? From Nisargadatta. I think I brought it. Yes. Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world. The world is myself. You are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern. I think, how can I possibly open to all of that? And that's the answer, I can't. You know, as long as it's I, of course it's limited. Of course. And much of the time that's going to be our experience, sure. That's why we keep on practicing. So both the wisdom of those moments of of not-self, of not-separation, of insubstantiality, of emptiness, allows some opening into the vastness of the beauty and the suffering. And also the natural purification that comes from our moment-to-moment mindfulness practice. That the natural purification that results in the changing of the habits of our mind. So that even at times when there's a sense of I, that natural response of aversion or aggression or hatred, sometimes we have the mindfulness, the clear wisdom and the courage not to at least act from that. You know, so it wasn't the natural wisdom that sees through it all immediately, but there's enough wisdom that we can see what's happening and come down on the purification, the wholesome side. That's what we're doing a lot in our practice here. And that counts. <laughs> it counts. So I hope this doesn't bum you out too much, but I just thought in terms of What we all are um, in this culture, in this day and age, where there's so much information, I think the question of how do we 
continue to open, not to shut down, not to go into such overwhelm that we just can't take in any more anymore information. I think this is a really crucial thing these days because we have so much information. So I just thought, I just wrote down, this is from today, listening to the news, and I just, I checked the BBC, but just my normal day's routine, I didn't go out of my way. Okay, Liberia, just a mention of how this horrible civil war that ended in 2003, and that now they're estimating that over one half of all adults in Liberia suffer from some severe form of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. There was a whole story about teenage girls who were being kidnapped for sex trafficking in the United States. A story about Holocaust survivors living in Israel, and then when they died, their, uh, their grandson found that they had remained really close friends with some Nazis uh, uh, in the SS in Germany, and then the whole thing that the grandkids were going through, trying to understand you know, how this could be, how this friendship could cross these, these borders. Eight people were killed in a huge car bomb in Beirut. Anything about the election campaign. <laughs> and that one, believe me, is a lot. Um, a young girl in Pakistan who was shot by the Taliban because she was advocating um, education for girls. And she's now in uh, a hospital in the UK, recovering very well. Other journalists in Pakistan threatened by the, by the Taliban. Gold miners strike in violence in South Africa. More wildfires than ever this year in the States. Chaos and war in Syria, violence in Yemen. The EU is thinking they might come to some um, agreement on bank supervision legislation at some year in the future. They also may be coming to an agreement on aid to Spanish banks. And it's a great thing there is, you know, an EU working together. If you, if you read European history of the Hundred Years' War and such, that wasn't so long ago. Um, or World War II, that was even less long ago. Various murder investigations, various sexual abuse cases around the world. Peace talks in Colombia between the government and the FARC rebels. The UN it still exists. And then we have our personal, you know, stories. A great friend of mine just took her first steps on her new prosthetic leg, sent me a picture. That's wonderful, you know, and they're suffering in it. Okay, that's really a minimal little thing. I didn't even go into my emails. <laughs> I didn't look hard. This is the kind of stuff we're flooded with. And how can we... Uh, find a balance, that's one question, I'm not even hardly going to go into that, because that's the whole question, but not to either just, so, well, it's all too much, so I'm just not going to listen to the news, you know, going through times like that. I've gone through times where I'll hear it all and see how you're hearing it, go, yeah, mm, that's a shame. Mm. You know, it's not superficial, well, it is a little superficial. It's not knocking it away, but just not you can't let it in. You can't each new news story, you die on the ground. You know, you can't get through 10 minutes like that. But I've noticed how I'll be going through, going through, and I'm hearing them, and then one will just really hit me. And I'm not saying, don't mean in a bad way, but I see the difference is that somehow the mind, the heart in that moment wasn't preoccupied with them, you know, pouring, getting the right amount of milk in my tea because I'm listening to this while I'm having breakfast or what am I going to say today or, you know, doing something else. That I was just sitting there open, receptive, not so self-concerned. And the story goes in and you really get it and it's beauty and it's suffering and, and all of that. You see, it's, it's that sense, that willingness to connect with an open heart and mind, which is the way I like to describe metta. When that connection's in touch with suffering, you get compassion. When it's in touch with a being, however they are, it manifests as metta. And in that moment, even what sounds like a suffering story, you feel that tenderness of compassion and you can hear the beauty in it. So I'll tell you another one I heard a couple days ago that I just happened, it was a lovely story, but I happened to be open at the time of hearing it. And they're talking about 
some hospital in Boston that was about to perform one of the world's or the world's first uh, leg uh, transplant. And they're going to transplant to this woman one or two legs. And they were interviewing her, and she sounded so upbeat. But her story, and I just thought, ah, just to tell you, this, this stuff, so much going on in this world. She's like, you know, early 40s, I think, had three children. And after her third, um, happily married in Texas, but after her third child was born, she got some kind of horrible infection. They didn't go into it. But the only way they could save her life was to amputate both legs and both arms. So that was like three years before this story. So she was talking, I mean, and it wasn't like, you know, goody two-shoes, but she had this spring in her voice and just talking about how supportive her husband had been, that he'd done, you know, she had prosthetic devices, but her husband just knowing that she really wanted more of a living, you know, and to be able to, to hold her kids and he'd been so supportive in searching this out and how wonderful her children were. But there was just something about listening to her that was filled with life and vibrancy and love and suffering, just kind of all of humanity in a way. And so I actually was like, whoa, you know, like I can see in some of your faces. But when I think back on it, what I hear is what, I, what went in was really uh, the courage and the love and the life about it in, in her particular case. When we really, and that's just a moment, I mean, I'm not always open like that, but in that moment, the quality of compassion is not depressive or self-referencing or overwhelming. Compassion, as is metta, as is equanimity, as is mudita, it's one of the illimitables, unlimited. It's a beautiful emotion. One of the Brahma-viharas, it is, in a way, an expression of the vastness, of emptiness, where the vast meets the profound. It's not a suffering state. It arises through the wisdom of the open heart and mind that's in connection with life. That isn't just for whatever reason in that moment needing to block. That for whatever reason in that moment isn't colored by fear, by aversion, by how does this affect me. So one of the reasons, and when, when the, the, oh, and this moves into the Dalai Lama, right? Let's go to him rather than me. He says things better. Talking about that compassion does develop through, well, this is the Dalai Lama. How does compassion develop? Through deep insight into what suffering is, and guess how that arises? by being present, by focusing on our own experience. I know Susie talked a couple weeks ago about self-compassion and how profound that can be. And it's also about opening into our own experience in that moment of self-compassion. That quality of mind isn't a mind that's colored by aversion, by self-referencing, by greed. So the practice of self-compassion isn't just to make ourselves feel better and accept what's happening. It's actually the practice of wisdom that opens into the vastness, into the profound. So as the Dalai Lama says, compassion develops by deep insight into what suffering is, by being present, by opening to our own experience, and then this strengthens into a sense of empathy, sense of connectedness with other beings. So starting with what we're presented with in this mind-body, as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body, okay, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember his exact words, but something about in this fathom-long body is the whole world. It's the beginning and the end of suffering. We can discover it all right here. And it does open into empathy. Pema Chodron quotes um, Stephen Levine, writing of a woman who was dying in terrible pain and feeling overwhelming bitterness. And at, at the point at which she felt she could not bear the resentment and the suffering any longer, she unexpectedly began to experience the pain of others. A starving mother in Ethiopia, a runaway teenager dying of an overdose, 
a man crushed by a landslide and dying alone by the banks of a river. And then she understood that it wasn't her pain. It was the pain of all beings. It wasn't just her life. It was life itself. Then Pema Chodron is saying, we awaken this bodhicitta. She's calling bodhicitta tenderness for life. When we no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. In the words of the 16th Karmapa, you take it all in. You allow the pain of the world to touch your heart and it turns into compassion. Maybe not right away. But this is really the natural effect of this practice that we're doing. Because how do we let the pain of the world touch our heart? By simply allowing the sadness, the physical pain, the loneliness, the fear, the arrogance, whatever it is this mind-body is experiencing, by allowing it to be in the light of mindfulness, in the light of awareness, to let it touch our heart. And it's already turning into compassion, that moment of how our awareness, our attention meets this moment is, this guy was talking about kama and result, the creation of kama in this moment is the way the mind is meeting what's arising. So however terrible or scary or annoying or whatever, or beautiful what's arising is, that's the effect of previous conditions. The way the mind's meeting it right now is the creation of present moment, kama. And so all this moments of simple mindfulness, non-judging, non-clinging, doesn't seem like such a big deal. But this is the cultivation of both of non-clinging, but also of compassion, also of non-ill will, of metta. And really, in a way, our own particular experience can open to the universal. And I remember, remember hearing Ajahn Sumedho say once, you know, you don't need any special experiences to get enlightened. You don't have to have special extreme suffering. The circumstances of our own life are all that we need as a vehicle for awakening and for the cultivation of compassion. When we're sitting here suffering, when we're caught in traffic, when we're having difficulty with the landlord, you know? And not to think in the other way that our circumstances are so difficult, there's no way we can experience happiness or wisdom or anything that really seeing it's not about the circumstances. We're not limited or defined by our circumstance in either a positive or a negative way. I was watching a, a little documentary the other night called Happy, and it was, it was about all the, the um, research that's going on these days about the creation of happiness in our minds. And it was, it was from researchers, Richie Davidson and others, but it was short on science, I have to say. It would like show a little chart and go, Studies have shown 50% this and 49% that, and they weren't going at all into the science. But they, what I loved about it was they had little vignettes of different uh, people, different circumstances, exploring what makes people happy. And the very first one is the only one I want to mention here, because it really shows that any idea we might have that our happiness or suffering is defined by our circumstances, external circumstances, just isn't true. So it started with this guy who, on whatever way they were measuring, came up as really, really happy. And they were interviewing him. He seemed really happy. He, he was, lived in Calicut, Calcutta, a very poor uh, rickshaw puller. Who, you know, he walks pulling rickshaw that people drive in. They're really poor, these guys. They work really, really hard in the slums of Calcutta. And he was so happy. He showed him with his wife, with his kids. He was so happy to come home to India and then showed the, you know, the little shack he lived in, which coming from our culture, it's easy to look at it and right away go into this kind of pity, not compassion. Oh my God, how can someone live like that, the poor? So happy to come home and his son's there waiting and so happy when he sees him and there with his wife and showing all the neighbors and how they all support each other. And it showed him pulling his rickshaw and 
describing stuff that I would hear like, oh my God, how can you bear it? And, oh yeah, that's just how it is, you know. And really happy. And he described himself as really happy. It was really so uplifting to see. But to see how easy it is to take a view about ourselves or a view about others, what's possible, both in terms of happiness, but also to when we're feeling overwhelmed by suffering, how we can uh, relate to something, a suffering that actually may not be experienced that way at all by the person. So opening this question of compassion, how do we continue to find the courage to meet, to open our own suffering and others, is supported by these moments of clear-seeing wisdom, but also by our steady practice, our willingness to explore what intention, what motivation of mind am I landing on in this moment. Years ago, I read this one line that stayed with me from a teacher. I forget who it wasn't a Buddhist teacher, but he said, in every moment of activity, activity of mind, body, speech, we are committing to something. The question is, to what? So that's not a judgment, but just a looking and seeing. As Geshe Rapton, who was a wonderful Tibetan teacher, said, how do we meet this moment? And so the cultivation of compassion with wisdom, wisdom with compassion, is looking and seeing. And seeing there's times when we can make a choice to act from non-ill will, compassion rather than cruelty, rather than ill will, rather than clinging. I remember uh, Utejaniya talking once a few years ago. There was a very ongoing, difficult Sangha political situation at his uh, meditation center monastery. And I don't want to go into it, but there was a lot of um, name-calling and power-grabbing, and he was really being kind of ostracized, and it was an extremely um, weird, unpleasant situation that went on for quite some months. And so I was visiting there in the middle of it, and um, the whole vibe of the place was really unpleasant. There was another abbot who was basically trying to push Tejaniya out, although Tejaniya was the teacher and not this other guy. And he was trying to, this other guy was trying to get all the money and, and trying to work up the, the lay people who kind of were in charge of running the place and saying all kinds of bad stuff about Saito Tejaniya and just kind of working the, kind of, that's how it kind of works in Burma. Everything's seems nice on the surface, but background, you tell bad stories until someone's shamed and has to leave. It kind of works like that. So that's what they were trying to do. Um, anyway, I was there visiting and talking to him, and he was just saying, well, he said, well, I'm not going to leave because I'm here because of my teacher, who he reveres, Shuayu Min, and he asked me to be here, and this is his center, and I owe that to him, so I'm not going to leave. And then this other abbot, the one who's doing it, there's all kinds of bad stuff about him. And I said, well, why don't you at least tell the lay community this other stuff that's going on? Not, it's not, it's not gossip, it's just true. He said, no, this is really a really interesting situation for me. He said, this is like an examination. This is like a final exam for my mind. Well, he didn't say final exam, that's American. But it's like an exam for my mind to see how my mind reacts in this really horrible situation. And what's really clear is I'm not going to add more akusala, more unskillfulness to this situation. So even though it would have been helpful to give this other information, he didn't want to do it because to do it would come from an unskillful place. He said, I'm just committed not to add more akusala to this situation. And it was really great to see. It went on and on and on for months. And then, of course, it all kind of righted itself. And that was a couple of years ago. And it's completely different and fine now. But to just see that quality of wisdom that meets the situation head on and then really sees what's going on here. It's not the external situation that's ever the problem, the source of our suffering or happiness. It's right here. We don't need to let ourselves become a victim of any circumstance or to think we need anything in order to cultivate happiness or compassion. Oh, that lets me read this quotation from Dingo Kensi that I really like. I've been trying to work it in. I try to work it in every talk. So I don't know if it fits here, but you're going to hear it. 
So he's talking about ego clinging. He said, the I is just a thought. Thoughts and feelings have no intrinsic solidity, form, shape, or color. When a thought of anger arises in your mind with such force that you feel aggressive and destructive, is anger brandishing a weapon? Is it at the head of an army? Can it burn things like fire or crush them like rock or carry them away like a violent river? No. Anger, like any other thought or feeling, has no true existence, not even a definite location in the body, speech, or mind. It is just like wind roaring in empty space. If instead of allowing wild thoughts to enslave you, you can realize their essential emptiness. When you see through the hatred within, you will discover that there is not a single enemy left outside. Otherwise, even if you could overpower everyone in the whole world, your hatred would only grow stronger. Examine the nature of hatred. You will find that it is no more than a thought. When you see it as it is, it will dissolve like a cloud in the sky. That's the wisdom of emptiness brought to bear on an experience of suffering with an attitude of compassion. I'm not saying that's always possible, but when there is that wisdom of emptiness, we really don't have to be afraid of anything that we experience. And when we are afraid of it, that's okay too, because that's when we're cultivating through the moment-to-moment mindfulness, the shifting of our habits, that what's been happening here over the time. They both kind of work together. So compassion needs, though, the wisdom not only of emptiness, but you could say another way, the wisdom of equanimity, the wisdom of knowing the uncontrollability, the vastness of experience. Now, Susie also talked about equanimity the other night. She mentioned the eight worldly winds. Knowing that this is the nature of the world, like I said, the Buddha knew, even with his vast wisdom and compassion, he couldn't make anyone else wise if they didn't want to open. He couldn't stop the violence even in people that he knew, never mind in the whole world. And if we have a view of compassion, which, I mean, I imagine most of us do, and we don't recognize it as a view, and it either becomes a should, this is how I should act in a compassionate way. I mean, that's better than, you know, not caring at all, right? But don't we often have that? I should be more compassionate to myself, to others. And there's a sense of, well, not quite not quite knowing what does that mean or how do I act or what's right in this situation or doing what seems totally compassionate and wise, but then the result is completely other and we're so thrown off or we're, you know, upset or we blame ourselves or whatever because we didn't have the big picture. But mostly we're never going to have the big picture. Life is so complex It's so ambiguous. We never can control outcomes. We can never control or even project most of the time or predict others' responses or know what all the situations will be and, you know, make all the potential decisions ahead of time. Have you tried doing that about some things here? Figure out every single thing that might happen to cover all the bases? You know, forget about it. Even in the little things, like walking into the cafeteria for lunch, where will you sit? You can't even control that. You think you can, but someone else comes and sits in your seat. It's all over. But take something really more complicated. Have you ever been the medical proxy for somebody who's ill and dying? I have. And even if you go through all the possibilities and you think you know what they want, believe me, the situation that arises will somehow be different from all the things that you went over 
and they're not able to tell you, and you have to do, make your best choice as you can. The choice of what you're acting for them, what they would want. You know, as someone told a friend of mine, you're not making the decision for them, you're being their voice when they can't speak. But to be able to do that, with all the compassion to really be present for the suffering and as much information as you can have about the whole situation and the medical ramifications and what will happen if this happens and what will happen if that thing is done. And will they get better or will they not? Will this increase the suffering? Will this make them get better? And no one really knows. And you have to make a decision and the next and the next. And then it doesn't go the way you'd hope. You make a decision for the think it's going to be better in two weeks, and instead it just prolongs for two months an agony. And to still be open and present and not be beating yourself up for that the whole time. I'm not saying I could do that in that clear of a way. But that's the union of compassion and wisdom. We never know. And then not to back out. And then to turn around and look and see what decision we make the next time from as much compassion and as much wisdom as we have. A story I've often told of Sister Chan Kong, used to be Sister Fong, the, the nun who's the associate of Thich Nhat Hanh. And you know, they both were uh, quite active social workers, peace activists in Vietnam and during the Vietnamese War before they got kicked out of Vietnam, because, because they were peace activists, neither side trusted them. That's how it is, and they, they got kicked out. But at one point, um, Sister Chang, she's only 16 at the time. I mean, she's a firebrand anyway, if you meet her, but totally committed to mindfulness first, and then action. She was thrown into jail in the, by the South Vietnamese for, I think, distributing peace leaflets or something. I don't remember what. And so she's in jail in a cell with a bunch of other women. And there were two young girls, 11, 12 years old, who were in that cell as well, along with hardened criminals and prostitutes and her. And they had been just swept up in a, um, the South Vietnamese army had just gone a sweep of a village. And anyone they thought was Viet Cong, which was the North at that time, they threw into jail. And these two little girls were part of that sweep. So sister... Chan Kong, Sister Fong, because her parents were well-connected and knew the police, she was released soon. And so she was being released and having a talk with the chief of the prison, and it seemed friendly. So she said, oh, I just want to tell you these two young girls are, are in there, and they're just innocent. They didn't do anything, and they're with all these hardened criminals. It's really not good for them. So out of you know compassion and wisdom and action, just communicating this, and the response from the head of the jail was, oh, I see the prisoners are speaking with one another. That's not good, so we've got to really tighten up the conditions here. This won't do. And that was it. That was the effect. So if we go into anger, if we go into resentment, if we go into hatred, that's not the way of wisdom and compassion. How you know, vast is this path? How can we do it? You know, if it's trying to do it all we can, but one moment, one moment to find the courage not to land in the resentment, in the aggression, just for that moment, even against yourself. Oh, how stupid was I? That's the way we would go, right? How stupid am I? No. As much information as we had, but we didn't have it all. The movement from compassion, and now this next. Situation is complex. We can't control it. How do we keep finding that? I read from a couple of, a few weeks ago, I read from John Lewis, the, um, the, one of the founders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and one of the original Freedom Riders in 1959-1960. I just want to read this because he's talking still again about the, um, the practice the way of life of nonviolence. And I read some of this before, but just again, how do we keep doing it? And there, Jim Lawson was the man who, who was training these young students. And he was a bit older than they, an African-American minister from Ohio, I think, who had been a disciple of Gandhi for a long time and was a conscientious objector and went to jail during the Korean War, so a long time ago. 
And so then he was really giving a lot of workshop to these young students on nonviolence, satyagraha as a way of life, based in Christian love. And so just another thing. Uh, so this is John Lewis again, though. So one method of practicing this approach is when, I said this before, I think when you're based with an aggressive, even despicable person, is to visualize them as an infant, as a baby. If you can see them as the innocent child she or he once was, it is not hard to find compassion in your heart. He says, when you can truly understand and feel, and to me this is the emptiness and the compassion together, and feel, even as a person is cursing you to your face, even as he is spitting on you or beating you with a stick, if you can understand and feel, even in the midst of those critical and often physically painful moments, that your attacker is as much a victim as you are, that he is a victim of the forces that have shaped and fed his anger and fury, then you are well on your way to the nonviolent life. That's one of the best descriptions of the understanding of emptiness that I could say. The emptiness is understanding just the causes and effects, yata bhuta, things as they have come to be. And it is a way of life. This is something lost and stressed over and over again. That this is not simply a technique or a tactic or a strategy or a tool to be pulled out when needed. It is not something you turn on or off like a faucet. This sense of love, this sense of peace, the capacity for compassion is something you carry inside yourself every waking minute of the day. It shapes your response to a curt cashier in the grocery store or to a driver cutting you off in traffic just as surely as it keeps you from striking back at a state trooper who might be kicking you in the ribs because you dared to march in protest of an oppressive government. If you want to create an open society, the means of doing so must be consistent with the society you want to create. Means and ends are absolutely inseparable. It's from a whole different angle, but I think that's the unity of wisdom and compassion. And I just want to end with a very different, from a very different uh, culture and training, the same thing. This is from uh, Ajahn Mahabua, who was one of the most renowned Thai forest meditation masters of the 20th century. Uh, Really very revered, but also very tough. No one would have called him warm and cuddly. And we met, I remember when I first went to Thailand before I became a nun, we met several Western monks who had come into town and had been practicing with Mahabua. And they were scared to death of him. I mean, they respected him, but they were convinced that he could read their minds, which actually I think he probably could. And in Thailand in general, I mean, who knows, but he was one of the ones that it was really considered to be an arhat. Very so. But he's not like, you know, like the Dalai Lama, everyone goes, oh, the Dalai Lama. Mahabu is like, yeah, he's, he's great. But so just to give you the sense, there's a book, I think someone may have mentioned it straight from the heart of his, which is really fantastic. But he was tough, rigid, a fighter, okay? So this is from him. You needed that background to hear this. He's talking about yata bhuta, jnana dasana, which I've talked about, the knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be. The mind knows and sees things as they are, within and without, through and through, and then it stays put with purity. Whatever it thinks, it simply thinks. The khandas are khandas, pure and simple. The body is simply a body. Feelings, labels, perceptions, thought formations, and knowing, cognizance, or consciousness are each simply passing conditions that we use until their time is up. When they no longer have the strength to keep going, we let them go in line with reality. But as for the utterly true nature of our purity, there is no problem at all. Those who have reached full release from conventional realities of every sort, you know, 
they don't assume themselves to be more special or worse than anyone else. For this reason, they do not demean even the tiniest of creatures. They regard them all as friends in suffering, birth, aging, illness, and death, because the Dhamma is something tender and gentle. Any mind in which it is found is completely gentle and can sympathize with every grain of sand, with living beings of every sort. There is nothing rigid or unyielding about it. It's the defilements that are rigid and unyielding, proud, conceited, haughty, and vain. When there's Dhamma, there are none of these things. There's only the unwavering gentleness and tenderness of mercy and benevolence for the world at all times. So let's just sit silently for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.